0: Welcome back to Beyond Well, I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I'm so grateful for the support of Active Recovery TMS. They're a group of one of the most dedicated teams of healthcare givers in the Northwest, offering transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine assisted therapy, and counseling to help people who are suffering from anxiety and depression and you can find an office anywhere in the Northwest near you because shouldn't mental health care be just as easy and accessible as physical health care? Yes. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And this is a program for people who want to explore our interior lives. And if you followed us for any length of time, you'll know that we've been really up on the use of psychedelics in mental health care, especially because Oregon is the first state in North America to actually legalize the medicinal use of psychedelics for treatment of mental illness. And joining us today to talk about a brave new company that is going all in on psychedelics for mental health care is Peyton Nyquist. Hi, Peyton, it's so good to see you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I wanna talk about Numinous because it turned out that two of my friends have already used your company. A friend in (laughs) Utah who went to the Ketamine Clinic and a friend in British Columbia. So you're already around the country. Correct. Yeah. We're uh,
1: across Canada uh, in a number of provinces and and uh, most recently last year expanded into the United States.
0: You know, we have been watching psychedelics come on in terms of especially mental health treatment for probably the last decade. Mm-hmm. And to see the commercial interest in it now, I think is probably the last peg in what we know is going to be all our gold rush. Right. Mm-hmm. Why is it so promising, Peyton?
1: You know, I think I think it's a couple of things. I think, as everybody is very well aware, we're in a very much a, uh, the very, very tip of a significant crisis in regards to mental health. And with that, we haven't seen any innovation in mental health treatment in 50 years, albeit certainly different revived practices in regards to mental health. And I think psychedelics are one of those. You know, it's a little bit strange sometimes to say, this is new or innovative because it's actually sort of the the original (laughs) mental health treatment that we're aware of. But I think with that, you know, the resurgence of research and the clinical data, I think MAPS, who we've been fortunate enough to work with for a number of years now, and, and for anybody who doesn't know, MAPS is really... The reason why any of us who are working with psychedelics are here—they've been moving MDMA through FDA clinical trials for about 35 years now, and you know their most recent data showed MDMA for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, which are folks who have tried every other treatment. Over 80% of participants uh, saw a significant clinical reduction in their symptoms, and 67% actually no longer met. The PTSD criteria after three mm. treatments. There's nothing, I mean, we we don't have anything that even comes close to comparing to that. And I think with that, from a stigma standpoint as well, I, I think people's minds have changed a lot in regards mm. to psychedelics. And I think it's bizarre to me in a way, it seems like anybody you talk to is microdosing or is going on some retreat or is doing something like that. And, and that's, it's wonderful to see psychedelics use with that intention. But for us at Numinous also, we can't underscore the importance of the preparation work, the integration work, all that really needs to be wrapped around a psychedelic therapy experience in order for it to really be effective.
0: I want to just go back a little bit because I'm I'm really interested in the research and how you have partnered with some of the teaching institutions and in the labs that are actually doing the work. So give us a little primer on that, especially for MDMA. Sure. sure.
1: You know, through my own experience with having my life saved with psychedelics, when I came out of that experience, it was originally just trying to figure out how I could give back to something that saved my life. I never planned on quitting my job and starting a company and doing everything that we've done. But as I was starting to have those conversations with people, you know, that it was primarily not-for-profit and academic groups. The conversation was just, how, how can I help? What, what, mm. what needs to happen here to give people an experience like the experience that I was fortunate enough to have? And the same thing, it didn't matter if I was talking to maps or academic groups, the same thing just kept being infrastructure. There was nobody building the other side of what happens when these drugs are approved. So that really, for us, has has been the focus, and it's been, you know, we we have full clinical trial site management organization capabilities. So we do where the sites for a number of clinical trials, including the MDMA work with MAPS, uh, LSD clinical trials, psilocybin clinical trials, but we also are able to you know, see what's happening in research and build a clinical model based off of what we're seeing. So we kind of get a a look into the future a little bit with what's coming. And and that's really been, that's been our focus.
0: Tell me more about the personal experience where you describe psychedelics as saving your life.
1: Yeah, sure. I suffered with severe chronic pain essentially since birth. And I grew up in a household that, that struggled with substance abuse. And my mom uh, got sober when when I was about 12. You know, she came home and the first thing she said to me was, you know, I'm very sorry for what's happened and you might want to start talking to somebody because there's going to be some stuff that eventually will come up in your life. And I took that very seriously because of my chronic pain and went on this mental health and physical health crusade whereby I was trying every single mental health treatment physical health treatment anything that i could do to alleviate my chronic pain and it was hugely transformational for me but my chronic pain symptoms just couldn't get any better and i got myself to a point where i was being hospitalized about three times a week and was really out of options kind of in this existential crisis almost of like okay I've committed everything to this path and I'm still this ill. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm actually not supposed to be here. Maybe there's a message I'm not getting here. And so psychedelics were really a last ditch for me. You know, again, with someone who came from a a household that struggled with substance abuse, I'd never had a psychedelic experience before. Mm -hmm. I always kind of was like the anti recreational drug guy, but with that, you know turn to and I I don't want to paint the picture of a panacea because I usually say this is when the work actually started but mm-hmm. I ended up turning to ayahuasca one week with ayahuasca and I never had any chronic pain symptoms ever again and it was you know I always preface with I would say that the system that was uh holding that pain is still very much there and intact but that mm-hmm it's maybe filled with a different fuel than it was was before so i owe a lot of my life and and why i'm here to to that experience and i think it was so lasting and impactful for me because of how much mental health experience I had and how many tools I had in my toolbox to then go like, oh, I I know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. I've got practices and tools that I can use to apply this to my day-to-day life.
0: I really like what you have said, because I think so many people, when they talk mental health, you know, how everyone walks around thinking the head is devoid of the body they really dismiss people's physical pain. And it's mm-hmm. so often tied up, especially in chronic fatigue in severe depression, that people feel immense chronic physical pain that they can't get doctors, a lot of doctors to even pay attention to. I so appreciate you sharing that story because mm. I think somebody out there might go, oh my God, that's me. I have all this trauma, all this yeah. holding, all this rigidity, and I haven't ever put the two together. Thank really you. Cool. Yeah. Well,
1: and I think important with that too is you know, we have these mental health indications that we associate with a a mental health indication, right? Depression, right. anxiety. How do people explain those things? Right. Oh, I I feel down. Right. I feel anxious. So mm-hmm. while it's it's maybe associated with a, a mental or a brain challenge when we're explaining these things, we're saying how it feels in our bodies. And right. You know, I I think it, to go back to the research as well, you know, there's psychedelics being researched for so many different indications and they seem to be effective for so many different indications. Um, we're fortunate enough, Dr. Gabor Mate, who who people might know is really, you know, a person who very, very, very early in numinous was, um, was a huge part of why we are today and, and has been an advisor to me. But I think why all these psychedelics are being effective for so many indications because we're getting to the underlying root cause of why these challenges exist, which is trauma. And I think we're reframing also the definition of trauma for people. I think when a lot of people think about trauma, they think about war veterans or first responders. Trauma is just any event that's happened in your life that has led to some kind of negative outcome. And that can certainly be you know, something severe, but it can also be your dog dying when you're six years old. It can be, you know, any of those things. And our nervous systems hold that imprinting and and they hold that that experience. Mm-hmm. And then our minds try and figure out, you know, how is the best way to keep us safe through that experience?
0: Yeah. I think it's um, interesting. I just spent a lot of time exploring your side and All of the different ways that you're both training integration experts, that you have the clinics so that people can come in, that they're led through this experience, and then you have someone who's skilled to work through it with them. But how are you dealing with the regulatory landscape, especially in North America, that is so checkered and so much of this is still underground?
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, The effort has always been how do we make this as accessible for people as possible? And, you know, the word accessibility gets thrown a lot around a lot these days. And I think that that. Accessibility means a lot of different things. It means financial accessibility. It means legal accessibility. But it also means, you know, from a training standpoint, accessibility for diverse groups of people, someone Mm -hmm. who's dealing with uh, sexual abuse, trauma or cultural trauma. There's nuances there that, you know, you need training and people who can hold people through those experiences. From a regulatory standpoint, in particular, you know, we've been fortunate enough, we're home based in in Vancouver, Canada. and one of the, the efforts that we helped change was there's a, a program up in Canada called the Special Access Drug Program. And it's a program that is offered to Canadians who need access to drugs or treatments that have not completed the clinical trial process but have shown therapeutic benefit and mm. psychedelics were previously restricted from being able to apply be applied for that program we we worked with health canada for a number of years to help change and, and have now changed that program. So wow. um, any Canadian can apply and hopefully get approved and get access to that therapy. But, you know, the thing that we've felt from regulators, and this is regardless of whether it's in Canada or in the United States is there's a lot of support for this. And mm-hmm. I think it's because the research is is showing it. And I think, you know, with that as well, from a safety profile standpoint, especially with psilocybin and LSD, some of the more naturally derived psychedelics, there's actually no lethal dose. They're actually mm-hmm. extremely safe drugs. Meanwhile, you know, I think now the the third highest reason why people end up in the emergency room is complications with mental health medications. Yeah. So there's a, a recognition there and a shift, you know, all coupled with the fact that it's very, very well known um, that this mental health crisis is significant and not going away.
0: I, I guess I would have to to challenge the idea that there's no downside because there are those outlying cases where people have really horrible trips, Yes. Uh, attempt self-harm, do things that are crazy, do things yeah that aren't in a contained environment. And so we do know that there's some killer doses that actually are harmful. How is your company working to try to find that sweet spot of what is the right amount of drug in each of these drugs?
1: Yeah, so that's a a great question. And to agree with you in regards to, there's no, from a a toxicity standpoint, there's no no toxic dose. There's no lethal from a, um, a toxicity standpoint. But from a set and setting standpoint, like any substance, there's certainly harm that can be caused. And Mm. I think with psychedelics, um, you know, the way we refer to them is uh, they're tools and a hammer can be used to build a house or a hammer can be used to hit yourself in the hand with really depends on who's who's managing it. You know, there's there's this conversation around bad trips, and I would argue what i think there's more of is is very bad set and settings and very bad environments that people end up in that you know inevitably will cause harm And I think for us, that's how we've really navigated that is through the research. We're very clear in regards to what dosing is, but more importantly, the training and stringency of the environments that we create are really where our focus is and and have been from the very beginning. And and our feeling around this is human beings are going to be human beings, and you're seeing a huge amount of excitement, encouragement, and use of psychedelic compounds, and unfortunately, There are going to be bad stories. There are going to be things that happen. And what we've always looked to build is, yes, there's positive momentum and that's great. But how do we build something that lasts beyond some of those stories that happen and keep a a level of rigor and intentionality that can supersede that? Because the last thing that we want is to fall into another situation that we ran into in in the 60s and 70s where you know, unfortunately the the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater right. at a time where we really, really need these treatments.
0: Yeah, I, I'm very interested for the use of ketamine. You know, it, it's derived from a party drug. It has that incredible rush of those feel-good chemicals. And then I have heard several people say that when the ketamine leaves your body, you're left really quite down. So how are people prepared for that feeling? Yeah. You know, dopamine, serotonin, it's all been washed out for mm-hmm. a bit. How do you prepare people for the eventuality that you actually need to do that work while the drug is in your system? Yeah. Monitor it really carefully, make sure that you don't go full stop, mm-hmm. that you taper down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It it does seem like there's the potential for abuse for people who have a propensity toward drug addiction.
1: For sure, and and in particular with ketamine. Um, yeah. you know, that this might sound counterintuitive, but ketamine actually is is the only psychedelic compound that we have a proof of potential for abuse certainly anybody can abuse anything but ketamine in particular because of the disassociative effects that it has you know that relief can certainly turn into dependence and that is why education is so imperative you know to be totally honest it's been interesting to watch and be a part of you know up in canada our regulations around ketamine are quite more stringent through COVID, you watched the sort of ketamine landscape in the United States go kind of crazy. And a part of that was due to actually some regulation change that were supposed to be temporary regulation changes where scheduled drugs previously, when you needed a prescription for, for a drug that was scheduled, you had to go in person and you had to sit with a, a referring physician through COVID, that all got to shift to be virtual. And you started to wow. see... These virtual ketamine models, which we've very much steered away from, and we want everybody to get access to healing and safe treatment. But to be honest, you know, we've seen a lot of bad practices, and we have sort of call them the ketamine refugees. But we have a huge amount of people who come to our clinics in the United States who have had really challenging experiences with virtual ketamine models. They see the benefit. They they see how this can be really useful. But you wouldn't do a do-it-at-home brain surgery. And so to to just sort of just go like, here's your psychedelic, you know, best of luck to you. I I think we have to be extremely cautious, extremely Mm -hmm. cautious. And I would love to see more standards put in place from the regulators in regards to ketamine. And I think that's coming, you know, to talk just, you know, MDMA, which is is sort of the next FDA approved drug um, through MAPS. You know it's interesting from a, a cultural perspective everybody associates mdma with ecstasy and and it being a party drug but mdma was actually originally synthesized as a psychotherapy tool mm-hmm. and there were hundreds and thousands of psychotherapy sessions that happened with mdma in the united states before it made its way into it, it was a Dallas nightclub that it made its way into and it became a party drug and then scheduled. So mm. there's this, you know, the the debunking of, of that. And, and I think back to your point around how do you prepare people for it's such a peak experience that these yeah. experiences are. And even just the coming back to, oh, that was maybe very challenging, also maybe very blissful. And now I'm back to the regularly scheduled programming. Which
0: could be the problem after all, right? (laughs) (laughs) A bad job, a bad girlfriend, a a bad outlook, you know? I mean, all of those things. I I really loved your point about how important um, talk therapy is along with it because so many people that want the peak experience... Forget you actually do have to go back to your apartment and pay rent. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like those are the things that contribute to depression and anxiety. Yeah. So how are we going to deal with the real life concerns that people have?
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's such a crucial point. And you see this a lot in the psychic, you know, sort of the underground psychedelic communities where there's a little bit of this, I would call it like spiritual materialism where it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my 200th ayahuasca ceremony and yada, yada, Mm -hmm. yada. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't hold a relationship to save my life and I'm not sure where my car keys are. These are tools to help improve your day-to-day life. It's Mm -hmm. not an escape It's an intervention to allow you to see how incredible day to day life really can be
0: so how do you decide which drug is more appropriate for a person based on mm-hmm. their history of trauma based on whatever medical illness they're dealing with especially in terms of mental illness and then what their risk tolerance is for a peak experience mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's a good question um obviously for right now ketamine is the only legal psychedelic that we have outside of of clinical trials but i think you know as as we move towards more of these drugs coming online whether it's psilocybin, MDMA, you know that's really I think why research is is so crucial. And I think as a part of that as an intervention, you know that someone who has severe trauma and PTSD, this psilocybin experience might just be way too overwhelming for somebody. Yeah. And so yeah. something like MDMA you know, MDMA is, is very therapy intensive. It's, it's, there's a lot of support as is, as is the psilocybin protocol. But I think as, as we move more and more into having more of that research data that I think will be very, very crucial. You know, for ketamine, we have a number of different ketamine products or protocols that we offer people depending on what they're coming to see us for. And uh, we've been fortunate enough to be working with ketamine for about 10 years now.
0: Wow that's amazing. So you had this first peak experience with ayahuasca mm-hmm. and then throughout your life have you felt the need to do a tune up to go back in to see what's happening with the rest of these psychedelics so you can talk about mm-hmm. it from experience?
1: That's a very good question. I did. I don't want to say what not to do, but I've certainly I sort of went on I would I would almost call it like a psychedelic crusade of really trying and it, and a part of it was just trying to learn uh, I felt that there was no way that I could lead an organization like numinous without really understanding you know what these things are and I've been fortunate enough to go through a, a number of different experiences with pretty much all of the psychedelic compounds with, you know, exceptional, exceptional practitioners and, and people who have guided and steered me through that. I've done lots of therapist training as well. And I think for anybody that is, you know, running an organization or trying to build something, not only is it extremely important to have these experiences, but just to get the t-shirt isn't enough. You, you've got to live that lifestyle because ultimately you have to know, know, and understand what the person who's coming through your door is and and also what the therapists are going through on a day-to-day basis you know the heavy lifting is very very much felt and done by the practitioners. And it is hugely demanding work and nobody needs more support than the practitioners do.
0: Given that Oregon is the first state in North America to have legalized uh, the use of psilocybin, do you expect to see numinous in Oregon soon?
1: We do. We've been keeping a very, very close eye on what's happening there. From a regulatory perspective, I think there's still a little bit to figure out there Mm. still. And so we we definitely see ourselves expanding. We would love to be all over the United States and Canada. Right now the thing that we've focused on is how do we create a model that is very scalable, replicatable, but still accessible for people. Um, mm-hmm. Insurance is a huge, huge, huge part of this yeah. conversation. And we're, I, I think we're the largest insurance reimbursed ketamine provider in the country. We get about 80% of our ketamine services are covered under insurance. You know, I i think while certainly we've sort of been at the very beginning of of this sort of Industry of psychedelics, but we're we're certainly also not out to just rush into whatever next jurisdiction is making some regulatory change. We want to make sure that we can expand in a meaningful way.
0: Peyton Nyquist, what a great conversation! I'm really happy we connected, and congratulations to Numinous. I'm a huge supporter of this effort. I I think if you read anything about my backstory, if these kind of treatments had been available to my late husband, he might still be here with us. So thank you again for your time and attention today i really appreciate it
1: thank you thanks so much for having me